What's the reason for church? Does a church have a mission? And if so, what is it? In this message, listen as Pastor Chris Chadwick preaches from the Bible on the mission of the church, pursuing the lost. We come to the book of 2 Corinthians, where I drew your attention to when we started, and uh, we're in chapter 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. In Paul's day, uh, the city of Corinth was major. Today, the city of Corinth is kind of a small city in Greece. I have a picture of it for you. It's a beautiful city. One of these days, we will take a trip to Israel, and we will go to Greece, and And if you want to be a part of that, uh, you'll see that Corinth, it's a beautiful city. It's, it's on water, obviously. It's just a beautiful, beautiful place. But today, it's kind of more of a tourist destination than ever before. In Paul's day, uh, the city of Corinth, under Roman rule was a capital of the province, and it occupied in Paul's day a, a very strategic location uh, geographically. It controlled the northern and southern mainland travel routes, and it also was a city that had three main harbors that are in it. If you see it right there, Corinth, you see it divided from Athens a little bit. You see a little landmass between there on the Isthmus, and they've eventually carved out a canal where they bring ships through. But in Paul's day, they would float ships up to Corinth, and then uh, through a series of ropes and levers and all kinds of great ancient engineering, they would literally carry boats across that landmass to the other body of water so that they could go because it was much cheaper and economical to do so. Because of that, the city of Corinth and Paul's day, like all port cities, especially if you have three main harbors, was a, a city that was known for its wealth. It was a city that was known for its luxury. Um, like San Diego, port cities are almost always very, very well to do. You study port cities the world over, the country might be in uh, poverty, but the city is normally, not absolutely, but normally a place of, of good, of wealth and prosperity. Well, that was the city of Corinth. But the city of Corinth was also a place of grave immorality. It was a city that was in desperate need of the gospel of Jesus Christ, horribly in need and, uh, of the gospel. And so Paul goes to Corinth on his first missionary journey. And in Corinth, the apostle Paul starts the church there in Corinth and he ministers to people. He sees people saved. He sees a church established and has a love for the people of Corinth. Well, because of the uh, luxury, because of the wealth, the prosperity, and the gross immorality, the church at Corinth was not known when Paul writes the first letter to Corinthians, first, what we call first Corinthians, when Paul writes that letter, he, he, he's writing a church a corrective letter because they were a very, very, if you will, ungodly church. Uh, they were marked by the world. They had uh, wicked attitudes, wicked affections, evil desires. Uh, they were lustful of money. They were envious of everything. They were sexually deviant, sexually perverse, and they rejoiced in their perversion. It's kind of like America today. If you, if you want to, if you want to be elevated to a place of prominence, be a pervert in America is like, Oh yeah, we celebrate that. That's what was going on in Paul's day. And by the way, like every Christian, Paul took a stand against that. Just like Canyon Ridge Baptist Church will take a stand against that. And, uh, we don't make any apologies about that, by the way. Never going to try to be rude, unkind, ungracious, unchristlike, but we will speak biblical truth until the last breath that we have as a church that gathers together in this location on Sunday mornings. We will stand up for what Jesus said is right and what Jesus said is wrong. And so Paul is writing this church and he's talking to them and he's, and he's helping them. And he is writing the church, when we come to 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, he is writing the church because the church at Jerusalem, really the what we call the mother church, the church that all other churches were started out of, and especially in Paul's day, the church at Jerusalem started the church at Antioch, and the church at Antioch is the ministry out of which Paul had authority, biblical authority, because people don't start churches. Listen to what I'm about to say. Churches start churches. 
When Debbie and I moved here from Amarillo, Texas, we didn't start Canyon Ridge Baptist Church because we just got this wild idea. Let's go to San Diego and start a church. Uh, we felt led of the Lord to start a church, number one. Number two, uh, we went to our pastor and we went to the leadership of our church and, and asked them and talked to them and had them pray. And over a period of about a year and a half, we prayed about it and prayed about it and prayed about it. And they felt the leading of the Lord, here's the biblical term, to commission us to come to San Diego and to start Canyon Ridge Baptist Church. Our, if you will, mother church, not to get super geeky and technical, but it's good for you to understand this. Our mother church is the Central Baptist Church of Amarillo, Texas. And the Central Baptist Church of Amarillo, Texas was started in 1932 by a guy named J. Frank Norris. Uh, If you went to Bible college, you've heard that name before, maybe. And J. Frank Norris was the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Fort Worth, Texas. And so we could trace a little bit of a lineage there insofar as the churches that we have. Well, not to get sidetracked, the Apostle Paul uh, is starting the, or started the church at Corinth out from under the church at Antioch, which was started from the church at Jerusalem. Well, the Christians in Jerusalem were facing a very, very difficult time financially. Because of their faith, they were being persecuted. And it was no small persecution. Uh, sometimes we view persecution in America today as somebody at work uh, didn't let us give them a gospel track or called human resources and said, that guy makes me uncomfortable because he wears a t-shirt that says Jesus loves people. And I feel uncomfortable about that. And those things happen. And I'm not minimizing that, by the way. I'm not minimizing that for a single second. I get it. But they're facing persecution at a, a very elevated level where they are losing their jobs And most of their jobs were tied to their families. They were being kicked out of their extended families. Their parents would, in many cases, have funerals for them, considering their children to be dead. And so even though the children were alive and in the same community they'd always been, they would have a funeral for them because you're dead to me, and they would literally have a funeral for them. They'd be kicked out of the family home. They, They would lose everything. If they owned their own business, people would stop purchasing from them. I mean, just the financial implications of this was very difficult on the people at Jerusalem. So Paul's missionary journey, this third one that he's on, Paul's missionary journey is in part focused on the churches that had been started out of the church at Jerusalem, taking up a benevolent offering and giving that offering to the church that is in need, the church at Jerusalem. So Paul is essentially saying this, they've given you the gospel and, and they've helped you in so many ways, eternal ways and, and real time ways. And now I'm asking you to give back to them. So Paul is taking this offering for them. Just so you know, that's the context of 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians 9. And he's taking this offering by faith. He's asking the churches to pray about and give sacrificially by faith. Why is he doing that? He's doing that because there's great value in helping those that are in need. Just because something, this statement, just because something is inexpensive or cheap doesn't mean it doesn't have value. I was reading the story this week of a, of a, um, antiques dealer in Texas who, San Antonio, who was going around to Goodwills and she was looking for things to buy. And she goes to this Goodwill and, and she's just, she's got an eye for things and she's looking around and she sees under a counter this dusty old bust that is there. And she looks at it and she thinks, well, maybe I could buy that if it's a good enough price and, and turn it around and make a little bit of profit out of it. And so she asked one of the Goodwill employees, to come and to help her because it weighed 52 pounds and she grabs this bust and or the guy grabs the bust and pulls it out put it on a car take it up she pays $34.99 for it she has no way to get it home so she puts it in the front seat of her car next to her the passenger seat and she literally secures it with a seat belt 
Like how many of you know that guy uh, that will uh, go to Starbucks for everybody and he gets like, you know, eight coffees or whatever and he puts it in the passenger seat of the car and he secures the drink order with the seat belt. I mean, that, how many of you are like, oh yeah, I've done that before. That's what, the, that's what this lady did. And she takes it to her office and she's just kind of drawn to it. So she starts doing research on this bus and she just thought it was a replica or, or you know, it was, you know, just, just kind of a, a, a fake one. And she realizes pretty quickly that it's real, does a tremendous amount of research and find that it's a Julio-Claudian era Roman marble bust from the first century. It's a bust entitled The Portrait of a Man. And it is, they believe, the bust of Julius Caesar's greatest enemy from the first century that has been in museums since it was first, if you will, commissioned and had stayed in museums from the first century right up until the Second World War when the Nazis stole it. And it got lost somewhere and this lady picks it up at a Goodwill in San Antonio, Texas. It's on display at the San Diego, uh, natural, or not San Diego, we'd go there, the San Antonio Museum of Art until May 23rd of this year. So if you want to see it, go to San Antonio for a day. And you can see it there. After that, it's going back to what they believe to be the museum it was stole from by the Nazis. I would submit to you that the $34.99 bust, though very, very inexpensive, had tremendous and has tremendous value. So just because something is inexpensive doesn't mean it's without value. The Apostle Paul is writing to church at Corinth and he is helping them to understand the value of faith promise giving because of the impact faith promise giving can have. I titled today's message, Pursuing the Lost Through Giving. We talked about pursuing the lost two weeks ago through evangelism. And last week we talked about pursuing the lost through evangelistic praying. I should have titled this, Pursuing the Lost Through Evangelistic Giving. That when we really see the scope and the magnitude of, of the vow and the value of what we give, it changes everything about what we do. The Apostle Paul is writing here and we see the church at Corinth in verse one and two of our text where he says, for as touching the ministering to the saints, it was superfluous for me to write unto you for I know the forwardness of your mind for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia that Achaia, just another word for Corinth, Achaia was ready a year ago and your zeal hath provoked very many. I want you to notice they anticipated giving. The church at Corinth was excited to give. They were ready to give. They, they were, it was superfluous. I, it is superfluous. Paul says it's over and above, or we might say it this way. I know it's not necessary for me to talk to you about this, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. I, I, I want to give, I, I know that this, this is Paul. I know that you don't need me to say this, but just for the record, it's superfluous. It's over and above. It's, it's unnecessary uh, for me to write unto you. Why is it unnecessary? Verse number two, because I know the forwardness. I know the willingness of your mind, which I boast to you of them of Macedonia. I, I know that that you, church at Corinth, are, are more than excited, more than ready, more than willing to give. I, I know this isn't going to be a, a difficult topic for you to, to talk about. This isn't going to be a, a challenging thing for you to hear. So, but, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. Well, what is Paul saying? Listen to me clearly. The church at Corinth, though at one time having a very difficult problem with sin in the church, had grown spiritually and now they actually anticipated giving. They looked forward to giving. Now they're given to a need in Jerusalem. We're given to the need of world missions. I'll make the parallel hopefully well here in just a second. I know the forwardness of your mind. Matter of fact, I know the forwardness of your mind so much that I 
am talking to the people of Macedonia. I, 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 uh, he says in verse number two, I boast of you. I, I, I talk positively of you. And he's not talking in a fleshly kind of trash talking way, but rather he is talking about in a, in a spiritual way. I encourage the people of Macedonia. I, I boast of you to them of Macedonia that you were ready last year to give money to the people at, at Corinth. Now, there's something interesting to be had here. If you're to look over in chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, and I think 5 and uh, 6, or 5 and 8, you would see that the churches of Macedonia, who were very, very poor churches from the region of Turkey, the, the churches of Macedonia, Paul uses them to exhort and encourage the people of Corinth to give because the churches of Macedonia, and we'll look at them next week, were very, very poor and impoverished and they had nothing and yet they gave and they gave with joy and they gave abundantly and they gave more than Paul could have ever imagined that they were willing to give. And Paul Paul says to the churches of, of Macedonia, he says, he says, says, hey, um, uh, you're giving. I want you to know that the church at Corinth is ready to give. And he probably said that about many other places. In other words, Paul is using the, the testimony of the church at Corinth to be an encouragement to the people in Macedonia and most likely many other regions. Paul, if I could say it this way, Paul is using the strength of Corinth to encourage the weakness of Macedonia. And Paul is using, in chapter 8, the weakness of, or, or the strength of Macedonia to encourage the people of Corinth. So Corinth is being encouraged by Macedonia, and Macedonia is being encouraged by Corinth. Let me give a little application that's not totally related to giving, but we can make that application. I just don't want to stretch it at all. And that is this. God brings people into your life to exhort you to challenge you, to grow you into Christ-likeness. There are people, if you're walking with Jesus, that God, who God brings into your life, and the sole purpose, not the sole purpose, but one of the main purposes of their life is to grow you into Christ-likeness. God never expects for you to go through the Christian life alone. God wants to bring people along your way to help you, to challenge you, to mold you into being more like Jesus himself. That's why Proverbs chapter 27, verse number 17 says, iron sharpeneth iron as a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. I'm encouraged and challenged and developed and grown as a believer by many of you here at Canyon Ridge Baptist Church. I'll say this very candidly. I would not be the Christian I am today without the members of Canyon Ridge Baptist Church. I'm challenged by that. I'm molded by that. The ugly dude you saw on the screen earlier, pray for him. I've been trying to get him to get plastic surgery for years. Now, the wonderful brother you saw on the screen earlier is is like a brother to me. We don't always agree on everything. As a matter of fact, sometimes our disagreements can be rather um, vocal. Pray for him. He needs help. Um, I don't know what it's like to be a loud, passionate person, but he does. Um, but, but the brother on the screen earlier, Pastor King, is a very dear friend of mine, and I've been, I've been shaped by that. I've been helped by that. And he has strengths where I'm weak, and I have strengths where he's weak. And, and we, we mold and we help one another to be more like Christ. And that's exactly what Paul is doing with the church at Corinth and the conversation he's having with them about the people of Macedonia. You will not succeed as a follower of Jesus Christ if you try to do it all by yourself. Well, pastor, I was raised to be a loner. Well, you were saved to be a part of a community. No, no, pastor, you don't understand. I'm an introvert. Well, Jesus saved you to keep your introvertedness, but also to be an introverted extrovert. Well, I don't like being around people. You're going to hate heaven. There's only one eternal place of isolation and it's hot. 
real, real hot there. Well, I thought heaven would be, I would just be out on a ranch somewhere with just me and my dog and my horse and nobody ever got old. Well, you're not going to get old in heaven, but it's not going to be just you and your puppy out on heaven playing with trigger on the front range somewhere. No, you're going to be with people gathered together, celebrating one another, encouraging one another, helping one another, growing one another, equipping one another for, for the, well, in heaven, for the praise and glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're supposed to be doing the same thing here. That's why iron sharpens iron, Proverbs 27, 17, as a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. Hebrews chapter three, verse number 13, exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. God has brought people in your life, not just for you to instruct, but to also instruct you, not just for you to try to mentor them, but also to be mentored. God brings folks into our life to help us into Christ's likeness more than just your spouse. No, I'm, I'm just giving you time to think about who that might be. If you're, oh, I got my one friend. No, no. It's more than one. And if you're like, well, nobody wants to be my friend. Well, he that hath friends must show himself friendly. Stop being a jerk to everybody. God will bring friends in your life. I'm just being serious. Just being serious. I know it's painful to hear sometimes. You say, well, what does this have to do with giving? Well, we'll get there in just a second. But you're to be encouraged by that. Let me illustrate it this way. If you've been around Canyon Ridge, you know that I've got a friend in New Mexico named Fergus Tanell. He comes to our men's retreats. He's a dear friend. And, and Pastor Tanell is someone who encourages me in giving personally. Like if Ferg is around and I need like, like I, I, we, I have a policy. I, if I can at all, if I remember when I'm around pastor's kids, because I was one, I give them all 20 bucks. I have this, I have this fraternity sorority. I don't know what that even means. But I have this club and pastor's kids, whenever I'm around them, I try to give them 20 bucks. If I don't have 20 bucks, I'll give them 10. If I don't have 10, I'll give them five. If I don't have five, I'll give them a dollar. If I don't have a dollar, I'll give them a quarter. If I don't have a quarter, I just smack them. Um, I'm kidding about the smack part. But I'll, I'll try to be a blessing to them any way that I possibly can. And uh, it wasn't too long ago that Pastor Tanell and I were around a pastor and he had four kids and I didn't have any cash and I didn't know the guy was bringing his kids. And so I was like, and, and Ferg is one of these guys from the Midwest. If you grew up in the Midwest, you always carry cash. And uh, I don't do Venmo or anything, but my wife does. And, uh, and I looked at the pastor. I'm like, man, I want to give your kids some money. I don't have any. Do you do Venmo? I was going to give his kids a Venmo offering for the first time in history. He goes, no, I don't do that either. And I'm like, oh, bummer. And I looked at Ferg. I'm like, bro, do you have any cash on you? And, and he goes, all I have are hundreds. And so I was like, is it cash? Which is exactly what I said. He goes, well, I thought you were going to give him 20s. I said, well, you don't have any 20s. Do you have hundreds? And I was just going to give a hundred to four and you just divide it that way. And one gets, you know, we'll give 25 bucks to every kid. And he goes, you know what? No problem. And he pulls it out and he just rattles off 400. I'm like, great, thanks. He goes, you know what, while we're at it, here's another one. And here's another one. I said, what's that for me? Because I'm a preacher's kid. I'm special. My dad's a pastor. And so he goes, no, that's for dad and mom because they were church planners. And he, you know what? Ferg encouraged me that way. I'm a better giver because of that. My friend Clark Bozier, who pastors, he'll preach our men's retreat this year. Clark pastors Willow Park Baptist Church in Texas. I'm so excited. Next Sunday, they finally get in a building they've been building for years. Uh, it's, it's super, I'm super pumped for them. They, I don't covet many things, but they have 1,000 parking spaces. I covet that. They have 85 acres. Their property's bigger than the city of San Diego. It's not, but my soul, man, it is huge. And I don't, I don't covet the 85 acres because somebody has to mow that. But the parking lot, a thousand spaces. We have 84 spaces, man. And, um, and though I'm pumped by that, it's, it can be challenging at times. And uh, Clark is a big time giver and gives big amounts and believes by faith. And so they're building this building. And I said, Clark, what are you going to do with the building that you had? He said, oh, bro, we're selling it. I said, that's great. So you're going to use the money to pay off the new building? He said, no, we're building this building by cash. And it's, it's in the tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars. I said, well, what are you going to do with the other building if you're paying cash for 
for this one. I said, how are you paying cash for it, by the way? He said, people give. And he said, I just asked people to give. So if you're in here and you have a lot of money, we're doing a remodel, it's $250,000. Give, give liberally and watch God bless your life, all right? That's not a missions message. I'm talking about other stuff. But Clark's helped me with that. And then Clark said, yeah, we'll sell this other property for like $5 million, let's say. I said, what are you going to do with the money? He said, we're giving it all away. I said, who are you giving it to? He said, we're giving it to missionaries. I said, I'm a missionary. (laughs) Helping me pay off our property in California. But they helped me give. They sharpened me. That's what Paul is doing with the church at Antioch. That's what Paul, or or the church at Macedonia. That's what Paul is doing with the church at Corinth. They're encouraging one another. They anticipated giving. Notice this as well. Look at verse number three and following. They organized giving. Their giving wasn't just haphazard. Their giving was organized. The Bible says we're supposed to take care of our flocks. We're supposed to take care of the things in our herds. And and we're supposed to know the state of our flocks. Proverb, direct quote from Proverbs. We're, We're supposed to know what's going on in our flocks. We're supposed to know what's going on in our herds. And 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 they were organized. And Paul says in verse number three, yet have I sent the brethren lest our boasting of you. The word boasting means encouragement of hope, not fleshly boasting, but but we encourage the church at Macedonia, lest our boast boasting of you would be in vain in this behalf, as I said, you may be ready. Paul says, I don't want to discourage the brothers from Macedonia who are coming with us from Macedonia to deliver the offering to the church at Jerusalem. And we're stopping by uh, Corinth to pick up the offering. So I'm sending some guys there early to make sure that you're ready because I've been encouraging the church at Macedonia, letting them know that your offering will be ready, that we just need to stop by and pick up the offering because you'll already have received it. It's kind of like this, if you will. The Apostle Paul is in Macedonia, and you'll see next week in chapter 8 how the Christians at Macedonia were giving and giving and giving and giving and giving, and they were very poor, and they were sacrificing. They were sacrificing, and poor people only have two ways to give. Either you don't eat the food that you would, food you would normally eat, or you sell what you have. And so there's some means of sacrifice on the people of Macedonia. And Paul says they gave to their power what they could afford. And beyond their their power, they gave by faith. And Paul says they gave this and and they're giving it to the needs of the church at Jerusalem. And and it's a moving thing. And and Paul says, uh, in my mind, it works this way. They receive the offering and the people from Macedonia come up and they're like, Paul, we gave everything that we could, but I don't know that it's going to make a huge difference for the people at Jerusalem. And Paul, verse number three, boast of the people of Corinth. And in my mind, it works something like this, where Paul says to the people at Macedonia, folks, don't worry because you gave what you could and the people of Corinth have already, they're ready to give and, and their offering will be received. And we don't believe in, in equal giving, but we do believe in equal sacrifice. And so the people at Jerusalem are sacrificially giving so that the people of Jerusalem would be blessed. And it's organized. Paul didn't want the delegation, if you will, from Macedonia to arrive in Corinth and then realize that the Corinthians had not even prepared to give, that the monies had to be ready when the people arrived. Paul said, lest our boasting of you should be in vain or worthless. Proverbs chapter 13, verse number 12 says, hope deferred maketh the heart sick. They show up from Macedonia to Corinth to pick up the offering and they realize rather quickly that you're not prepared and they were excited that you would be partnering together. And now they realize you're not partnering together in this offering, but rather you haven't even prepared. And it would literally make them sick if they found you unprepared. Verse number four, less happily if they in Macedonia come and find you unprepared or not ready to give. To prevent the zapping of this zeal, the church, uh, zapping the zeal of the church at Macedonia, the apostle Paul sends a delegation to make sure the giving is organized and ready. As we prepare to give to missions next week, let me just be very, very 
very candid. We are intentionally organized at Canyon Ridge in really everything, but especially in the area of giving and giving to missions. Intentionally. Matter of fact, I encourage you to come back tonight at five o'clock and I'll tell you everything that we do for missions. Not a single thing will be kept. We're not only organized, we're very, very clear and upfront about it. And sometimes people say, well, I have this question. Great, ask the question, we'll get the answer. And if we don't have the answer, we'll get it and tell you the answer. Because we have absolutely no problem. We want to be organized. We want to be above board because it's a biblical principle. And we see that principle laid out here. And the necessity of, of organization when it comes to things related to finance. And really organization in every area. We want to be really organized in everything that we do. And we work really diligently for that. But no area more is more necessary for that than the area of giving. And then Paul leaves them with this in verse number six. Look, verse number five, I just want to read it together with you. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before unto you. This is the delegation he sends. And make up beforehand your bounty. Give before we get there. Wherefore ye, whereof rather, whereof ye had noticed before that the same might be ready as a matter of bounty and not a matter of covetousness. Verse number six, but this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart shall let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity. God loveth a cheerful giver. And God is able, verse number eight, to make all grace abound toward you, that ye having always all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. I want you to notice not only organized giving, I want you to notice involved giving. Paul opens this reality of involved giving up with what we call the biblical principle. It's called the law of sowing and reaping. And and it's self-explanatory. He which sows sparingly. Now you have to remember everybody in Corinth would have been familiar with with farming to some degree, called an agrarian culture or growing things in the ground. They would have, many of them would still grow things in the ground or they would buy from, from folks who grew things in the ground firsthand. They would go to the market, still like much of the world today, and they would buy their food for that day and maybe part of the next day. And so the farmer comes and he sells what he grew and the rancher comes and he sells what he slaughtered. And Paul is sharing this very easy to understand illustration about agriculture that if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. Well, what do you mean? Well, let's say in the Corinthian day, you're going to be a a man who grows or a family who grows olives. And so you're going to plant olive trees. If you're going to go out and you have a thousand acres, let's just say for the sake of discussion, and you put two olive seeds in the ground and you get two olive trees out of that, well, that's great, but you sowed sparingly you're not going to reap a lot of olives off of two olive trees. Now, you'll reap a lot to us, maybe, enough for all the olive oil you could use in a year and maybe give to a couple friends and family members for a year, but you're not going to create a business of olive oil and olive pressing off two trees. You sowed sparingly. You'll reap sparingly. It's a biblical principle. You sow sparingly. You reap sparingly. It's just a principle of life, isn't it? Let's take business. You want to start a business, and I have the opportunity and the, the blessing of consulting with guys regularly on, on business stuff and helping people with their, get their businesses started and off the ground. And, and I, I, I really encourage people to, to advertise and advertise a lot, get your name out there. And, and I talked to one guy one time. He's like, yeah, we put out like 10 or 15 flyers, and nobody, nobody called us, yet you sowed sparingly. You're going to reap sparingly. Every year at Canyon Ridge, we try to put out hundreds of thousands of flyers introducing people to Jesus Christ. Hundreds of thousands. Why is that? Because we don't want to sow sparingly. Why? Because it's a biblical law. If you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. Go home today and plant one seed. If it survives, you get one fruit of the seed. Then go to your neighbor's yard and plant all the aloe vera you can in their front yard and see what happens. Say, why aloe vera? That stuff just propagates like mad. 
We can plant whatever. The law of sowing and reaping is the more that you sow, the more that you reap. You plant a thousand olive trees or 2,000 olive trees, you're going to get a huge return of olives. And come harvesting season for olives, you're going to, as a general rule, have a bountiful harvest. Why? Because you did not sow sparingly. When it comes to giving, here's what people often tell me, Pastor, I gave and nothing happened. Well, you don't get to give one time and expect that. Well, Pastor, you said give and it shall be given unto you. And every week you encourage us to tithe and give. Right, and I'm not gonna stop doing that. Not till the day I'm not the pastor here. You're gonna hear it every single week because where your treasure is there will your heart be also. And it's a biblical principle to be involved in giving. And, and, and the involvement of giving, the return of giving is directly related to the amount of involvement that you have. You sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. You sow bountifully or over and above, you reap over and above. And notice verse number eight. Now, by the way, here's the fear that some people have just in hearing this conversation. Like, oh, pastor, are you, are you preaching a prosperity gospel? I am not preaching a prosperity gospel. I'm just preaching the Bible. The prosperity gospel says this, if I give $10 today, I'm gonna get $10,000 tomorrow. I'm gonna tell you this, you give to missions today, your washing machine will break next Tuesday. Just to be clear, it's an issue of faith, not finances. And we give not to get rich. We get to populate the kingdom. We give to populate the kingdom of God. But God in his good graces knows who he can trust and he will provide for that individual so they can continue the practice of giving. Been married 28 years, right? 28. <sighs> I've been getting my kids' age wrong because it's hard for me to say, like, I have a 27-year-old. I was, either she's 30 or three, and I can't figure it out. But 28 years. When Debbie and I first started giving, we gave to missions $30 a week as a couple 28 years ago, $120 a month. To some of you, that'd be big, and, and you should take that step of faith. If God tells you to do it, do it. I made, after taxes, $107 and some change every week. So we gave over, just to missions, not tithe, just to missions, over 30% of my income every week, just to missions. 30%, just to missions. I'm gonna tell you right now, <laughs> we didn't eat out a lot. I should also inform you, I was 62 pounds lighter. I really was. I didn't, couldn't afford to go to a gym. I played a lot of basketball because it was free. There's just a lot of things that we didn't have. But can I tell you, look, I think it's verse number eight. Let's look there together real quick. I just want you to see this. God is able to make all grace abound toward you that ye having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. Can I tell you that when we were given 30% of our income uh, at, uh, um, I was 22 uh, years old, Debbie was 20, given 30% of our income to missions, uh, it didn't feel like we missed anything. Now, I, want, I want to be clear here, we didn't miss anything. But you know what did happen? Our faith grew like mad. Because we, we gave and we didn't miss anything. Now you say, Pastor, are you giving a percentage like we should give? No, no, I'm not saying anything. This is what I'm telling you to give. Pray and ask God what he would have you and your family give for the cause of global evangelization. Don't give a penny more and don't give a penny less. We felt like God told us to give that amount of money. We weren't always able to give that percentage, but that's the percentage that we gave. And, and we don't even believe in percentage. We believe in an amount. And so I make way more money now than $107 a week, $110 a week. I, I tell you, it's great. Um, no, I'm teasing. I make way more money now than I made back then. And I give way more money now than I gave back then. I give way more now than I made back then multiple times over. I watched my dad 
I'm just going to tell you stories, a couple of stories to, to encourage you. I watched my dad. My dad came from a very, very, very poor family. When you talk about poverty, my family has the corner on the poverty market. My grandfather was an abusive drunk, was kicked out of the house by my uncles when my dad was six years old. My dad grew up, and this is a different era back then. They didn't have a lot of the social programs and things that they have now. Uh, But my dad grew up not owning shoes. My dad grew up going to school. They'd have, he'd wear shoes that were too small or didn't have soles in his shoes and they'd put newspaper in the bottom of his shoes and that's what he'd walk to school in for years on end. They'd, my dad grew up where if they had like pinto beans, which you could get from the government back then, um, they, they didn't have EBT cards and things like that. I'm not being down on anything. I'm just saying it was a different era. They, they, would, they would have pinto beans and government cheese, which was the original Velveeta. I still love that stuff. Oh my soul. Heaven came down and Velveeta filled my mouth. It's awesome. I love it. Um, my dad, my dad, uh, they would eat that. But if they didn't have that, there'd be days that would come and go and my dad didn't eat anything. And he had six brothers. There were six boys and two girls. They were extremely poor. Extremely from the wrong side of the wrong side of the tracks. And I'm not exaggerating. There's the bad railroad tracks, and then there were houses, and then there were the place that they stored the broken boxcars. Two blocks behind that is where my family's from. And I'm not exaggerating. I could today, and I'm thinking about it, just buy the lot that my dad grew up on for $25. I researched it the other day. 25 bucks. I could own it. That tells you a little bit about where my dad's from. I watched my dad, jo- I watched my dad join the army. I wasn't alive yet. Um, but my dad joined the army. Um, worst decision. Should have joined the Navy. God bless the Navy. Best branch in all of the military. The United States Navy. Haze gray and underway. And so if you weren't here last week, I made fun of the Navy. I apologize. I'm, that's penance. And we're not Catholic. Um, but my dad joined the army and, and uh, met my mom. They got married. My dad was gloriously saved at like 21 years old after getting out of the army. Joined at 17, did a three-year uh, tour and, and got out, got saved at 21 years old. Um, and not long after that, God called him to preach. And I have watched my parents give to missions my entire life. I watched my parents give by faith to missions. Would you listen to me? When there was no food in the house. You say, do you think that was right or wrong? It's what God told them to do. You say, well, how do you feel about that? I'm 270 pounds, bro. It didn't affect me that much. My brother leads the children's ministry at his church. My sister leads the children's ministry at this church. I have the privilege of being the pastor here. I, I think they probably did something right. And I'm not trying to compare. I'm just saying I think they probably did something right. And so I watched them give and I watched God bless. I watched them give and I watched God bless. I watched them give and I watched God bless. I watched them give and I watched God bless. Over and over and over, I watched my parents just be involved in giving. They didn't take mission trips. We didn't really take vacations. We're from that, my parents are from that era that a vacation is to go see somebody at whose house you could stay for free. So we saw grandma a lot. But she lived in the same house my dad grew up in. So that wasn't exactly the most fun thing for me, but that's what we did. We always tried to do one fun thing on vacation. Imagine that, only one fun thing on vacation. Like we would go 14 days without anything fun. Then my parents would say, on the way home, we'll stop at the Grand Canyon. We'd stop and we'd look up. It's a big ditch. Let's go, guys. We got to get there. (laughs) Story of my life. I watched my parents give and give and give. And then about 20 years ago, my dad just felt pressed of the Lord to give God half of anything that's ever come into him, that, that he was unexpecting. So like if I said, hey, dad, here's 10 bucks. My dad would go, hey, can I have two fives? 
Sure, why do you want to know two fives? And he would take one five and he'd put it in a special pocket or, or uh, slot in his, envelope, in his wallet. And he would go, oh, that, I'm just going to give that to God later. Well, no, I gave that to you. You don't have to. I mean, if you're going to tithe, give a buck. No, I call it, a, my, this is what my dad said, I call it a proof God offering. And I'm just going to give God half of everything I wasn't expecting. So uh, my dad would co- preach somewhere and they might give him an honorarium. He would take half of that, give it to the Lord. And he and my mom did that. They still do that to this day. And I... I sat my dad down one time about 15 years ago and I said, dad, you're getting older. I'm not trying to be funny, but you're getting older and um, you need to retire. Listen to, listen to me of major faith. Dad, I don't know how to say this, but you might want to curtail your giving a little bit because I'm fearful that you're not going to have enough to survive on. My dad informed me in only terms that a West Texan would understand that I was way out of my lane, way out of my lane. Like, like I thought I was getting a spanking. I really did. He literally said, I'm going to lay you over this bed. <laughs> we're not even, we're at a restaurant. Please don't. Not here. Again, flashbacks from my childhood. And um, so I was like, Okay. I just want you to know that God does provide. About seven years ago, my mom's best friend died. Her name was Gloria. Best friend, she had served as a volunteer at the church in Amarillo for years. And and Gloria died and the attorney called my mom one day. My mom was the executor and she's, the attorney said to my mom, he's, Arlene, I need you to come by. We need to discuss the paperwork. And my mom said, okay, I'll come by. And she goes into his office a couple of days later and they sit down and he says, Arlene, I, I need to ask you what to do with the disbursement of funds. How do we disperse these? And my mom said, I don't know. She said, however, Gloria said, we want them dispersed. I'm just here to take care of it. And the guy goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, where do you want them to go? And my mom said, Gloria, or, or to the attorney, I, where did Gloria want him to go? And he goes, well, don't you have a copy of her will? She, he, my mom said, no, I don't have a copy of it. She kept meaning to give me one and never did. I just told her when she died, I'd grab one and we'd make sure that it would go to wherever she wanted her funds to go. And the attorney was like, um, well, where do you want him to go? And my mom said, wherever. So they got in this, if you got to know my mom, if you have a German mother, they don't always understand any, everything. And when they don't understand it, they get mad at you because it's your fault that they don't understand. And so that's going on. It's a little bit of like, and, and my mom goes, why are you pestering me as to where this goes? Let's send it to where she said. And the attorney looked at my mom and said these words, don't you know where it's going? And my mom said, I have no idea where it's going. It's wherever Gloria wanted it to go. I told her I would take care of that and fulfill her wishes. And the attorney kind of pushes back in his seat, exasperated like every man who's dealt with my mom, and says, Arlene, she's left every dollar to you and Gerald. Everything that she has is yours. And my mom looked at him like, what do you mean it's ours? (laughs) yours all of the stocks are yours all of the bonds are yours all of the gold is yours the house is yours the car is yours the antiques are yours everything is yours my mom goes to do what with yeah where do I send it and the guy goes it's just for you in that one event Every single dime my parents had ever given to missions, every single thing they'd given above their tithe was given back to them plus 100% more. My parents were living in a community that was kind of going downhill a little bit. They sold their house for what they could get. They went across town to a nice growing neighborhood. Because of this, they paid cash for a house that they'll die in. We assume that. My parents have no debt. They took care of everything. They increased their missions, and they gave half of everything that Gloria gave them for the cause of Jesus Christ. 
Why? Verse number eight, God is able to make all grace abound toward you. You say, oh, pastor, I'd love it if somebody gave me that kind of stuff because Jesus has given it, shall be given unto you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. Shall men give unto your bosom? Pastor, I'd love for people to give to me. That's great. But they gave faithfully to missions and tithe and served for 50 plus years. And God doesn't do that with everybody, but he did that with them. And God doesn't do that with every single person on the planet. But he does something, and he's able to make all grace abound to you, toward you. And Paul is telling the church at, at Corinth, hey, these poor people at Macedonia have sacrificed greatly. You make sure that you sacrifice as well. Don't put the back of the care of the church at Jerusalem on, the, uh, uh, on these poor people that are in Macedonia alone. You make sure that you are giving. You make sure that you are sacrificing. And you make sure that you put God in a place where he's able to bless you, and when he does, there's great joy in giving, which is what chapter two teaches, or chapter eight teaches us, that God, or chapter nine teaches us, sorry, that God loves a cheerful giver. I find the greatest joy of my life in giving to missions when I hear guys like Anthony King call me and say, hey, Chris, we uh, just baptized eight people today, or when we read a mission report on Wednesday night in community Bible study about a missionary in a creative access nation who had a baptism in a bathtub of a house and three people committed their life to following Jesus Christ. Or as I go into creative access nations and I meet people, young people who got baptized and every single Sunday they come to church and every single Sunday night they go home and every single Sunday night they are beaten by family members because they went to hear the word of God preached and the word of God taught. I tell you, I just sit back in humility and enjoy going, I cannot believe this is happening and I get to be a part of that a creative access nation where we support we support missionaries in a lot of creative access nations one of my friends reached out to me and asked us to pray for a lady by name who had come to Christ she went home she didn't even tell people she was a believer but they knew it her brother was a witch doctor cousin was a witch doctor they knew she came to Christ. And the night she came to Christ, they stoned her. They wouldn't let her in the house. She had to sleep under the house with the animals. If you've ever been in a third world country, that's often how it is, especially out in the rural areas. And while she's under the house sleeping, the men of the village, the men of the village come and they stone her. She's not left for dead, but she's stoned. Don't you bring your Jesus into this village. Don't you ever go back to that church. Don't you ever do that. Some people in the church, disciples, went and grabbed her, brought her back, healed her. She says, I'm going back into the village. They said, you can't go back into the village. She said, I gotta go back into the village. They said, you can't go back into the village. They'll kill you. She says, I'm the only light that village has. She goes back into the village. She lives under the house more persecution, more physical abuse, more attack, more attack, more attack, more attack, more attack. She's praying. She gets kicked out of the village, comes back, kicked out of the village, comes back. We pray. We send offerings from Canyon Ridge to be a help and a blessing. Debbie and her have become very, very close friends. In the last four months, her witch doctor brother got saved and is currently in discipleship at their local church. A nephew who is a famous witch doctor got saved. A sister who's devout in the religion of their village got saved. God is doing something amazing in that community. And God is doing something amazing in that creative access nation. And I tell you, when I see that, I just kind of stand back and go, I get to be a part of that. I get to be a part of that. That's fruit that abounds to my account. I, I can go without taking another vacation. I don't have to wear the nicest clothes. I don't need another fountain pen. Got 52. But here's the reality for most of us in the room. We can give without any form of sacrifice. 
Most of us giving, even giving lavishly, would not change the quality of our life one iota. It would move the decimal point to the left a little bit. But for most in the room, it wouldn't change what you ate for dinner. I've tracked it. The people who give a lot at Canyon Ridge over the years, I just kind of watch. They still drive nice cars. We've never had anybody, I'm selling my car just to give to missions and and I'm going to ride a penny board back and forth to work every day. Never seen that. I'm taking public transportation. Never seen that. I'm not saying people might not do that in the future. I'm not asking anybody to do that. I'm just saying it seems like God's still blessing. I've never had anybody say, Pastor, I gave so much we just don't have money for food. I've had people say, I've gambled too much. I've had families come to me and say, I got lit up on Friday night and I spent all my family's money on alcohol, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and sometimes even thousands of dollars getting lit up on Friday night paying, uh, paying for beer for me and my friends. And, and now I have no food for my family. Can you help me out? I've had people pay for porn, but I've never had in 30 years of ministry, I've never had one human being on the face of the earth and always being involved in giving churches. I've never had one person come to me and say, hey, I gave to missions and I just want you to know we're out. We've got nothing. Never. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. We see it probably happen maybe to some degree with the people of Macedonia, but God is able to make all grace abound towards you. And when we get involved in giving, we see God do some amazing and wonderful things. I titled this series of messages, bring that slide up, Pursuing the Lost Through Giving. Well, two weeks ago, I talked about pursuing the, pursuing the lost through personal evangelism. And then last week, we talked about pursuing the lost through evangelistic praying. I should have titled this message, Pursuing the Lost Through Evangelistic Giving. Because when you give to missions, you're literally giving so people can hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why you're giving. That's what God is doing. That's how God is doing it. It's through evangelistic giving. And my prayer to you today, or for you today, is that you will give and give generously. Well, why would I do that? Well, the lost is needed. Yeah, but pastor. Okay, let's go one step further. Turn to the book of James real quick. If you're new to church, it's almost at the end of your Bible, if you have your Bible with you. James chapter 4. It's not in my notes, James chapter four. James chapter four, verse number 13. The Bible says this, go to now ye that say today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell it again. Here's all he's saying. Those of you that say, hey, we're just gonna go to this city. We're gonna start a business and we're gonna make a ton of money. uh, And and that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna stay there for one year and we're just gonna make bank for a year. That's what we're gonna do. James is saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let me give you some caution, verse number 14. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. What is your life? It is even a vapor it appeareth for a little, that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now you rejoice in your boasting and all such rejoicing is evil. Paul says, you're planning for a future that you don't know you're gonna get. You're living for a day that you don't know is gonna come. Now, this isn't a, a, a message or an, a thought or an idea on, on being foolish or a bad steward in any way, shape, or form. But I want to close this message out with verse number 14, the second part. You don't know what should be on the morrow. Here's the part. For what is your life? It's a vapor. It appears for a little time, and then it vanisheth away. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ and you're saying, one of these days I'm gonna come to Jesus. One of these days I'm gonna get saved. One of these days I'm gonna trust the Lord. One of these days I'll put all my faith in Christ. Understand, your life is a vapor. 
Well, what's a vapor, pastor? A vapor is a mist. And when you live for the, the future wealth that you might have, and one of these days I'm gonna drive a Ferrari, you might rent a Ferrari, but I'm looking at this crowd, doubt you're driving a Ferrari. And that doesn't make God bad. And any pastor who ever told you that if you give money and one day you'll have a Ferrari and your ship will come in, they are a liar and you should run from them as fast and as far as you can. Lying to God's people so that they can get money. I'm telling you, if you give to the Lord Jesus Christ, I cannot guarantee you that you, you'll get it back tomorrow. It might be like my parents 50 plus years later, and it might not be till eternity because we're not laying up treasures on this earth where moth and rust corrupt. We're laying up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. But our life is a vapor. It's a mist. We might define it this way, a fog, I woke up this morning, left my house at 6.15, driving here. My house didn't have any fog. Came over Genesee and Mount Alifan. There's a little valley that is there. And I looked and there's fog everywhere. Drove to the church, fog everywhere. Parked my car, walked up to my office and looked outside my office window, fog everywhere. Have a little morning routine, takes me about five minutes. At the end of the five minutes, I looked out the window again. There's not fog it appeared for a little time, vanished away. That's your life. That's my life. My friend Jerry Hopkins died a couple of weeks ago, 84 years old. It just seems like just yesterday, his wife was saying, they've been married 62 years. Seems like just yesterday we got married. And 62 years ago. I know, but it seems like yesterday. It appears for a little time. You know why we give to missions? Because the souls of men are eternal. What goes on with the soul lasts forever. This life, this physical life that we have, it is so short. It is so quick. It is so fast. It's here and it's gone. Well, I'm gonna move to this city and I'm gonna make a ton of money. Hey, let me caution you. Understand, God is in control and you need to ask the Lord's will is what he's saying in James chapter four. But more than anything else, your life is a vapor. It appears for a minute and then it's gone. It appears for a little time and then it's gone. Don't make the mistake of hoarding for your future, thinking that your future on this earth is eternal. You will not live forever. So we encourage you, do your giving while you're living so you're knowing where it's going because we want to give evangelistically so that the world can hear the gospel proclaimed. Father, bless our time. Thank you for listening. Find more messages every week at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, join us for a service. We meet at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 p.m.